Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Move it, Hello and welcome to episode three of Movie Brat Bros De Palma Rama, the podcast where we are looking at every single film in Brian De Palma's filmography to determine how he fares up against Francis Ford Coppola on the year of the film's release. The film on this episode, if you don't already know from the title of the podcast, is Raising Cain, released in 1992. So the film we'll be going up against is... Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. More on that a bit later. And my guest for this episode is the always amazing Mary Wilde. Uh, It is an absolute pleasure to have Mary on the podcast. She's been on the main podcast to talk about Somewhere, the Sophia Coppola film. So it was great to have her to talk about a film that is all about the mind. That's kind of Mary's bag. And this was a really fun, deep, detailed conversation. And a lot of theories thrown around, a lot of personal stuff, and it's uh, I love it when conversations go this way. There's plenty of levity as well. There's, there's plenty of fun, funny turns of phrases, and uh, yeah, in this conversation. But it's yeah, it's, it's really special. And I'm, as I said, I always love speaking to Mary, especially when it's uh, about a depraved director like uh, Brian De Palma, and I mean depraved in the best sense possible. It's a compliment in my book not an insult in any way. So I guess all that's left to do is to get movie Bratton with the bro. Looks like she was put in the car when she was still alive and then drowned. Look, look at her nails. See how they're cut and torn? Looks like she was trying to claw her way out. You should see the expression on her face. You know, I hate to bring this up, but you are married to the perfect man. I don't know. Car popped up out of Half Moon Marsh. Had a woman's body in it. And he's becoming awfully compulsive with Amy. He doesn't just take care of her, he studies her. What do we got now? Two moms disappear from the same playground. You could get us all put away for good. I have this horrible feeling that it has something to do with his father. I did nothing. I don't even exist. This thing you're doing means everything to the old man. I won't hurt her. She'll hurt you. We gotta find these women now. I don't want to be walking behind any lousy coffins. I want to know what you've done with Amy! I 
I do. Uh, you should never have gotten out. Dr. Walheim! You're nothing but a cheap hoodlum. I am what you made me, Dad. I know what you're going to do. It's a bad thing, and I'm gonna tell. It was Bonzi! He did it again! It's my wife. You saw us in the park together, didn't you? I'm not gonna let that loving wife of yours sell you down the river. Give me my child! What do you think? I think... This episode, we go deep into layers of dreams, split personalities, and soap opera pastiche. So we look at Brian De Palma's 1992 psychological horror thriller, Raising Cain. Joining me in one impressively long take today to take a peek inside the demented, deranged, and deceptive mind of Brian De Palma is Freudian cinephile lecturer, contributor to the Evolution of Horror podcast with her always insightful World About Horror segments, and host of both the Projections podcast and one of the best Patreons in the game is, of course, the one and only Mary Wilde. How are you today, Mary? Hi, I'm doing really well. Thank you for such a lovely introduction. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> I'm glad to have you. Uh, yeah, speaking about your Patreon, I think, like, listening, you're, you're, you're the one person I find that regardless of if I agree with you about like your opinions on a film someone I always love to hear what you have to say about <laughs> a film and like sometimes I know when you do like recent watches on your podcast I'm always like oh, I'd love like I don't know it's, it's like certain films like I think when Licorice Pizza came out because I know you're you're one to kind of love to talk about the the controversy of everything and the kind of the discourse as it were around things I'm always like I like I'm always like I wish Mary would say like this I don't know talk about it more or something or really dive into it yeah it's kind of like uh, yeah I, I'm a massive fan amazing of what you do. <laughs> oh well, thank you so much I'm so glad that my contrarian shenanigans are uh <laughs> have have been have been proven to be amusing um I, I just uh yeah I really I guess it's maybe the psychoanalytic streak in me that likes to, you know, just kind of disturb the apple cart a little bit, um, poke around and see like what the trigger points are. Always in good faith, though. Yeah, that, well, that's like, I think I listened to your episode with Sam Ashurst all about uh, Last Night in Soho, a film that like, not for the reasons that a lot of people disliked the film, like I had no problem with any of the kind of exploitative almost like De Palma-esque elements yeah. of the film I just kind of I found it a bit Doctor Who for my liking uh, <laughs> but like like I still absolutely as I said like yeah it's, it's it's fascinating to still listen to you talk about like a film that yeah I don't particularly like. <laughs> excellent excellent <laughs> thank you so much. So yeah, obviously I've got you here today, Mary, to talk about Brian De Palma. So what was your introduction to Brian De Palma as a filmmaker? 
Well, um, so my first real encounter with the Palma um, was when I essentially like back in, we're talking like early 90s, um, you know, sort of discovering movies at the video store. And I started watching a lot of his films, you know, as like a young teenager. And uh, so the ones that really impacted me at the time were Dressed to Kill, um, of course, Scarface, but I also really liked Body du- Body Double, mm-hmm. you know, and I guess those ones that are particularly like Hitchcockian, you know. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. <laughs> um, I guess Dress to Kill as well, but yeah, I I just immediately loved his cinematography. He is so stylish, you know. I really appreciate that about him, and. Yeah, I guess it just he just really intrigued me. I know that there's lots lots of times people have said that he just sort of rips off Hitchcock. He's not that original, you know, that that he's maybe too, I mean, maybe paying too much of an homage, you know, he should he should maybe solidify his own vision, but I I actually think that there is something to be said about a real dedicated admirer, you know, like a real super fan who emerges and I guess like manifests their own style of filmmaking solely predicated on the love of another. Yes. Yeah. 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 I get, and I guess it's kind of like a splinter of uh, two people who were mainly influenced at that time by Hitchcock, which would have been Dario Argento as well, kind of doing it in, in, in Europe and then Brian De Palma. And yeah, that idea of him just really leaning on that and almost like carrying the torch. And I guess, for me, like the the torchbearer after De Palma, somewhat would be like David Fincher in a way of this kind mm-hmm. of like I don't know. There's something kind of weirdly uh, leaning into the grotesque and like the often mm. I don't know. Yeah, it, stuff that is quite Hitchcockian as well in its kind of the way it plays out and just I don't know. There's something in that thing. Uh, the cinematic language of it all and the kind of like just sometimes the visual of the story really tells you a lot about the characters and stuff like that or just kind of like mm. we'll get into in this film like sometimes you can have a dump of exposition you can make that dump of exposition really fucking pretty and just do some like magic camera work or kind of real real tricks with the cinematography or yeah like the cameras and stuff like that and just like yeah. kind of not not be af- not not be afraid i don't know i feel weirdly like all the stuff with um is it panic mm-hmm. room all the stuff with mm-hmm. the camera going through like in like through places it never could feels like a move that brian de palma possibly would have done if yeah. the technology were there when he was kind of <laughs> in his prime as it were yeah, and that originates in so much also in like the opening scene of Psycho, you know? Oh, yes. And the camera is sort of like zooming into someone's hotel room. It's just uh it obviously it was the limitations of the technology at the time, but yeah, I suppose it is carrying a torch and carrying forward that legacy of that very curious style of filmmaking that is so heavily weighted on suspense and um, really just sort of 
absorbing us as a filmmaker. It's a true seduction of the viewer. Like, and you're right. It is not so much relying on maybe uh, script and dialogue, much more uh, the, the the visual aesthetic mm-hmm. of these characters. That does the real talking. And that's how we really get to know these people more intimately through the camera and through the the way they've, you know, they've been directed by De Palma. I think it's really sensational. Yes. And like, obviously, De Palma is, for me, like, loves to lean into the absurdity of things. I think like, <laughs> there is a moment I keep going back to on this podcast in Body Double, where mm-hmm. um, the lead character and the kind of femme fatale in that story hiss on the beach and there's this like the signature brian de palma kind of whirling shot around them and it's almost like laughable in the kind of like the pastiche of it all and he's kind of like he takes it almost like yeah we'll get into it in uh raising cane but gets like all, the film feels like not only is he kind of rip like or oh, ripping off but like paying homage <laughs> to to hitchcock he's ripping himself off and like paying homage to himself <laughs> in a weird way, like the kind of uh, finales just kind of, there's like a tick list of like, oh, that's from that film, that's from that film. And I'll, 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 yeah, I'm sure we'll delve into yeah. where those elements come from. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, what, what I wanted to, obviously we said that he borrows tropes from, Hitchcock, but what for you are the mm. tropes of a Brian De Palma film, Mary? Well, for me, it's got to be um, firstly the themes, um, mainly um, psychological thrillers, you know, really leaning heavily into the psychological dimension of characters and showing some kind of pathology that they really suffer from. Mm-hmm. But also, um, you know, the fact that he's so good at depicting graphic violence, which Mm -hmm. I know he's been criticized for and he's been accused of being gratuitous uh, or excessive. Mm -hmm. That's sort of, um, you know, as you probably know, uh, there's no such thing as too much of anything in my book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I just think that the moment we get into a discourse where we feel compelled to set limitations therein lies our own, you know, disavowal of something really fundamental. And we have to be careful with that. We have to pay attention to that and and observe that and try and wrap it into our consciousness. Why do we feel like this is being too much? That's our own response to something. So, um, you know, for me, I think there's, it's never been the case that he's been gratuitous. I think that the, the worlds that he's creating as you said, are absurdist and they are meant to be um, almost slightly on the fantastical side, almost playing along dream logic. Yeah, like when you get to that moment in Body Double where there's the the murder with the the drill, like really sexual imagery as well. And like, I think that is like a scene that's kind of, I don't know, uh, picked out of all of his films of like the gratuitous, like, violence of it i guess scarface mm-hmm. is a weird one in that like yeah it has gratuitous violence but it's kind of been like co-opted by not even like movie bros just bros in general do you know what i mean <laughs> it's kind of like 
it was a rite of passage, especially when I was growing up, for just every suburban kid to have a Scarface poster on their wall or kind of whilst they're playing Grand Theft Auto Vice City at the same time, kind <laughs> of playing out those same gratuitous violent, uh, violent acts. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that if we really were to deconstruct the architecture of his movies in the grand scheme of what he's actually trying to say cinematically, the violence that is depicted is proportional to the excessive emotional um, feelings that, or, or sort of the emotional dimension of, of these characters or something that needs to break through. And the other tropes for me, uh, in, just in terms of te technical um, issues with, uh, you know, things that we connect with the, the Palma are really his unusual camera angles mm -hmm. uh, and compositions, you know, the way that he frames characters against the background uh, using the canted angle shot and his split screen techniques. Um, you know, I remember watching Kill Bill and um, there was some fantastic homage done in that one. I think volume one mm -hmm. to De Palma uh, when one of Beatrix Kiddo's perpetrators, uh, I think it was actually Daryl Hannah, uh, she wakes up from the hospital bed mm -hmm. or she, or maybe she's stalking the hospital or something like that. She's in a hospital space. She, I think she plays like she goes undercover as a nurse or something. And the split screen of what she's up to, like, yes, isn't that perfect De Palma? And it's scored, it's scored by, it's a Bernard Herman score cue as well from, yeah. uh, what is it that? I saw, yeah, That's like, right. yeah, it's like, I don't think it's a Hitchcock film, but like, even that, it feels like someone like Quentin Tarantino. And I think it was Sam Asher said, I listened to their uh -huh. the, uh, Arrow video podcast about uh, Raising Cain. And he is, he espoused that um, Brian De Palma seems like the biggest influence on Quentin Tarantino in a way mm. that like, but I think in a way, like to kind of uh, expand on his point, he kind of takes it to, the nth degree whereas like uh brian de palma was very focused on hitchcock and his kind of paying homage like uh quentin tantino will steal wholesale from a number of directors and a kind of like <laughs> a, a number of genres of film and kind of like this kind of do all of that and yeah again he's a, another filmmaker who doesn't see anything wrong with having moments of colorful bursts of violence but they, they they play a big part of the plot and kind of i don't know yeah again uh probably suffers a lot of the same complaints that brian de palma has whether it's the kind of the way like his female mm. characters are uh portrayed on screen and stuff like that and i i think uh i don't know uh <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to that later but brian sure. de palma always says uh I like taking, I, I like photographing beautiful women. And I guess you can't, mm. you can't knock a guy for, for his tastes. No, absolutely. I love that he's unapologetic about saying that yes. because this is an essential quality of the cinematic experience to, um, you know, keep the kind of libidinal, um, erotic component at the heart of your movie, you know? Um, of course, like, 
taste and beauty might differ. You yes. know, there, there may be a, a variety of different definitions of what even constitutes a beautiful woman or a beautiful man for that matter. But it, it, that's almost um, a moot point because he is, what he's showing us is, is his own uh, preference. And that's what drives him personally. Yes, yeah, like yeah. for Quentin, it's women's feet, you know? <laughs> Yeah, so what whatever whatever floats your boat. Yeah. I mean, I am all for that. I think it is so cool and refreshing when filmmakers actually you know, just kind of admit what turns them on. Mm-hmm. It's a real insight into what is actually the driving force of their cinema. Exactly. Yeah. And I guess yeah, I guess Brian De Palma's taste is Nancy Allen, right? A, a woman he married. Yes. But <laughs> But in his films, and yeah, on that point, he said, like, he would rather see her, like, creeping about a dark house with a candle than Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I think is a, is like, <laughs> and the audience, I guess, would, would like, like to see that because at the end of the day, I don't know, uh, just taking Nat Ellen, for instance, or kind of like the, the archetypal woman that he would use in, like, his films, whether it's, oh, what's her name from? Phantom of the Paradise, who's in Suspiria. Uh, People are at home going, Tuh. but yeah, yeah, like these kind of women that he uses. It's sure. Like those, those, there's a frailty to them almost. And it's kind of like that mm. thing of that's going to be a lot scarier than yeah. a hulking Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of <laughs> traipsing about a, a haunted house or a, or a kind of darkened house. And it's, yeah. Um, I don't know, yeah. Uh, John Lithgow in a in a trench coat, like in Blowout, isn't is is isn't going to be as scary to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's always about that contrast. Um, you know, the the potential for excessive violence <laughs> pitted against the, you know, the, the the actual capacity of the lead characters to confront it. Yes. And you, there has to be some kind of d- discrepancy there, you know, if you want it to have the desired effect that the Palma does, um, you know, and I think that is fair enough. Mm-hmm. That is fair enough. It's it's not some kind of uh, disparaging quality of, of the characters. It's much more about the tension that can be created and um, delivered through violence couldn't put it better myself so let's talk about raising cane before we do here's okay. some stats it was released on august 7th 1992 in the u.s with a january 8th release here in the uk uh, the budget for the film was 12 million dollars and grossed 37.1 at the box office the film not stars, bad yeah not bad at all that's a pretty mm. like uh for a film that's considered i guess as a flop somewhat to a lot of people i think it it washed its face uh uh the Mm. film stars john lithgow lolita uh, davadovich uh stephen bauer and francis sternhagen so mary what is your relationship to this film and when did you first see it well i saw this um i think i must have been in high school at the time i rented it on video and i really liked what I saw. I liked John Lithgow anyway. Mm-hmm. And right away I thought, cause I was really into like, even, even then in high school, I was really intrigued by 
like psychology and particularly like multiple personality disorder. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a very like strange concept to me. And in the 90s in North America, this was actually a big talking point. Um, And it was a bit of a controversial diagnosis in many ways. So often you would hear about it on the radio or like Oprah, you know, or like Donahue and stuff. So um, it was just something that fascinated the general public. Like how can one person be multiple people and swear that they just enact all these different personalities that often don't even know about each other. (laughs) So it was a real like mysterious thing. So I guess I just liked the film because it was covering a lot of these rather like peculiar issues that were quite popular in the in the discourse at the time Mm -hmm. and um yeah anything i guess even early on i always liked anything to do with um the double in movies you know uncanny movies um and this kind of thing where the, the i guess the filmmaker is being a little bit like of a trickster and playing with the assumptions of the audience and like exploiting, you know, those kind of foregone conclusions. And then there's like a big plot twist. So I just like the format, the structure. It really spoke to me. I can't say I really understood it that well at the time, but now I rewatched it, especially for this podcast mm-hmm. to prep. And I'm happy to say that not only did it um, kind of stand, you know, the, the, the test of time for me, but actually... I think it's much it's a much more superior film than I even remember it because now I'm coming with it I'm coming to it with much more knowledge about psychology psychoanalysis and I mean it just the in terms of research mm-hmm. it it's even though this movie is bonkers yeah, <laughs> it's truly yeah. bonkers and insane still um the way that multiple personalities is explained this diagnosis, by the way, the label has now changed. It is no longer referred officially um, as as that. It's called uh, dissociative identity disorder. Okay. So it's a totally different di- label, but it's essentially the same mental disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though it's gone through like research adjustments and like the criteria has changed, etc., the way that this particular mental disorder is explained in the movie actually still is pretty accurate. You know, it like really stands up even today. And I just love that about De Palma. Like I like that he, that's a very, Hitch, that's a very Hitchcockian move to like really give a lecture about psychology, you know, in the middle of your movie yes. or in the case of Psycho at the end, you know, Um I, I really like that. It sort of appeals to the nerd part side of me when I'm watching a movie. <laughs> and I find it a very interesting film at the period in Brian De Palma's career as well. So obviously he had just come off the mm. back of the untouchables, casualties of war, and I guess like, which is probably quite pertinent to to why he kind of returned to his, I don't know, thriller, psych- yeah, his thriller roots almost. With this film was Bonfire of the Vanities kind of being a a critical and commercial um, flop. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to, like, what do you think of, like, that kind of 
I, I, put, I put I put in the kind of shared document about like De Palma mm. being like jaded at this point. Like, w- what do you think in the kind of context of his career mm. that obviously for him to, it would have been, yeah, like nearly 10 years since he kind of dabbled in that kind of sandbox. And mm-hmm. what, for you, like, is it is it an interesting move or is it a lazy move to kind of go back to something you were kind of almost wrote the book on somewhat or kind of at least wrote mm. the the appendices at the end after Hitchcock <laughs> no I think quite the opposite um personally I think it is actually a pretty bold move to go back in that direction um I mean I may be biased because this is just the type of topic that appeals to me immediately when you shared your like, you know, the the title list for De Palma, I just went straight for this because um, I think for me, this is pretty high up. It's high up there as one of my favorite De Palma movies. And I think that especially when you've become very well known as a director for tackling these types of subjects mm-hmm. and also being quite, you know, um, I guess, controversial you know there's been like a mixed reception to the stuff that you've done it hasn't always been received in the spirit it was intended you know so to go and 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 almost like return with this I think it's a provocation yeah (laughs) I think it's you know what I mean like I think it's sort of a very daring move that probably a lot of people didn't see coming and there is a there is a lot of self reference in it, you know, um, and again a lot of Hitchcock moves uh, on display here, but again very, I guess like unmistakably the the Palma in the stylish delivery, mm-hmm. and just in you know the one of my favorite things about this movie is the close up shots mm-hmm. in scenes that otherwise would seem very ordinary yes and it's because he's framing the character's face so tightly it's like relentless mm-hmm. um it it feels very uh aggressive and it feels very just like provocative and daring and um and yeah it just sort of adds to the hysterical tone of the movie which i appreciate you know i know that some people just are looking for subtlety uh exclusively in their movies to them, I'm, I, I would love to know you're barking up the wrong tree with the palm. <laughs> you know, you have to you have to make some adjustments because he doesn't he doesn't play the subtlety game. He's after something else. He's after excess and and some kind of overstimulation. You know, yes. and so yeah, I think it's daring. I I think it's exciting. You know, obviously, I was too young at the time when I first watched this movie to appreciate it in its full context historically in relation to what he'd released before. But when I think, obviously, retroactively in 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 terms of his filmography, I think this is a bold move. Yes, and I think like you you saying about kind of being self referential. I always look at the character of Mac as being like a surrogate for Brian De Palma, like who's mm. kind of talking about that that case of Nick's that came before, and he's kind of almost <laughs> like self-referentially saying, like, I've done this before. 
I've wow. done this genre before. I kind of 20 years ago, I was kind of like the 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 kingpin of this genre. And it's like, <laughs> let me tell you, let me kind of show you guys in the early 90s how it's done. Do you know what I mean? It's like I've been doing this, I've been doing this for a for a good long while. Like this is I and, and if you kind of look at the, <laughs> the actor, um how is it? Uh I did write his name. Down, uh, yeah, uh, Brand, uh, Branton Heyman, like looks mm-hmm. looks somewhat like a kind of <laughs> Brian De Palma, especially now. He's kind of yeah. like a slightly portly gentleman, and yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and he's like one of the shots of him as well is the only time in the film we get a split diopter shot, which like, yeah, I guess for like De Palma fans, it's like ah. Oh, there's one of your trademarks and you've given it to the the surrogate of you in the film almost it's almost like like a breadcrumb trail for those kind of devotees to his work to pick up on and be like i'm also saying something about filmmaking in this absolutely bonkers movie about split personalities and kind of i don't know like because I, yeah, I guess one thing we need to talk about is, have you ever watched the fan cut that's kind of been co-opted now by De Palma himself as a, as like the official, what would be a director's cut, basically? No, I haven't. So the film was, um, yeah, in 2012. Uh-huh. Uh, Pete Geldelbloom, uh, yeah, was just a, a massive devoted Brian De Palma fan and kind of acquired the original script for the film. And uh, like just in his spare time went about just uh, re-editing the film based on that original script. And it kind of front loads the film with the Jenny site and like subplot of the whole thing. And then mm. it's not until a good chunk in that we get that scene that opens the the movie in in the theatrical cut of um carter abducting the 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 friend of the family and the young girl we get that maybe Mm -hmm. maybe like halfway through the movie and then it's kind of like it acts as more of like a twist do you know what i mean it's even more of like a twisty film because it's kind of up until then it's it's this soapy film almost about this this woman who's having second thoughts about her marriage and having this dalliance with a former lover. And then obviously we get all the, all the mad dream sequence stuff. And it's kind of, (laughs) it's kind of revealed that something. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. And then, yeah, it kind of mixes about with it a bit more. I I, I watched, I, well, I, I weirdly watched the, uh, the fan cut before the original uh-huh. not realizing i thought i was watching the original and then kind of have come back in recent months to watch the theatrical and i'm like oh i watched the i watched the fan edit the first time i ever watched this movie that is incredible that is incredible i mean i watched it on that my rewatch was uh, the blu-ray that i had um but now i'm thinking i need to source out the cut that you're talking about yeah, so I think it was it was released on like a super special edition Arrow Blu-ray of it, oh. and I know in the US like it was released via uh, Shout Factory, but yeah, De Palma kind of said like 
this is what I kind of wanted to do with the film originally. And I think like because of what had mm-hmm. happened with Casualties of War and Bonfire of the Vanities, he'd kind of lost his bottle somewhat as a filmmaker to kind of, he wanted to make a hit basically. Like he'd, yeah, he made the film kind of locally to where he was living because his wife at the time was married and kind of, I guess, yeah, after having two failures, it's, it's it, you, you just want to make a hit. And I think whilst filming as well, they, he didn't have an ending for the, for the movie as well. It's kind of, he was pulling his mm. hair out. I think there's three editors on the film, if I'm correct. So I think there was like people swapped in. Yeah, there's Robert yeah, Dalva, there's three. Yeah, Paul Hirsch and Bonnie Kohler. Bonnie Kohler. So like, yeah, like <laughs> uh, one, of, one of the editors um, was famous at the time as well for kind of being uh, basically sorting out movies that had gone wrong like okay and was brought like was brought in and yeah as I said Brian De Palma was there in the editing suite pulling his hair out going I just don't know what to do with this movie I don't know and kind of went for I guess what he thought was the safest option like with this kind of like front loaded with this guy as multiple as multiple personalities and, and we'll run with it but yeah it's a it's a fascinating kind of curio to sort out i definitely definitely recommend that excellent um so yeah in regards to yeah we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the theatrical cut so um in regards to how it how it set like is is kind of set up like what what are your kind of like i don't know feelings and like the way that brian de palmer uh visually tells us the differences between carter and kane <laughs> to begin with well, I mean, obviously, um, when we're first introduced to this split, um, it's not 100% clear that they are the same person. Mm-hmm. And we're invited to believe that maybe this is just his twin brother. Yes. You know? And so, obviously, like, costume-wise, um, they're different. Um, accessories. Uh, Kane wear, wears those uh, sunglasses. Yeah. But I feel it's much more, though, in the posture and facial expressions mm-hmm. that their differences are the most marked. And um, John Lithgow is such a good, um, I guess, physical actor. Yeah. yeah. And he is truly gifted at, I guess, yeah, playing multiple roles and convincing us, like really persuading us that these are all different people with very different personalities, different impulses, different motivations. Um, It really took me by surprise. I mean, I knew that he's a very, I know he's a very gifted comedian. Um, I have have like the, the reverse to how everybody else sees John Lithgow. I think for a lot of people, they see him as this like actor who is like predominantly a comedic actor and then uh-huh. like he's also done these like darker films, whether it's the stuff he's done with the Palmer with Obsession, Blowout, and yeah. this. But my introduction to him as a kid was Santa Claus the movie with Dudley Moore in it, and he plays the <laughs> like toy tycoon who's like brought into court because 
his toys have got like glass and sand and nails in them so i was like i remember like even when it came to like watching like harry and the hendersons i was like oh there's something (laughs) about that guy and i recently rewatched that film as well i was like he's not like he's not the nicest guy either in that film he's kind of just like (laughs) he definitely would be like a trump supporter now like this kind of (laughs) right-wing gun-toting nut who's all about like hunting yeah yeah, all these trophies in his in in his house and stuff like that. But yeah, I <laughs> I I I I've, I don't know. It might, it might be because I've never watched Third Rock from the Sun either, or kind of when I did uh, as a young kid was like, oh no, that's that that's that really creepy guy. Like, no, thank you. I don't want anything <laughs> to do with that. Oh, that's so funny. That's so interesting. Okay, I can understand that. Um, <laughs> why it would probably put you off to watch third, you know, Third Rock because that wasn't that was my real um, kind of connection mm-hmm. to him. So in my mind, he was the comedian who could also go dark. Yes, um, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is that thing. Like, and I, and it is that for me. Like when. I, so obviously he had he had that run in season four of Dexter as well as the that's right the Trinity Killer, which <laughs> I, I I need to I need to uh, mention this here now before I forget is mm-hmm. there is a fan theory that the character of the Trinity Killer is um, Carter's Carter O'Keefe's twin brother from Raising Cain, oh. and I love I love that idea that he Ooh. kind of. Or it could be Carter himself, because as as uh, we'll, we'll spoil the end of this film, Carter is very much still alive, and there might there might be more personalities inside that head that we didn't oh get God. to meet in this film. Yeah, I, I have a feeling we only scratched the surface here. Yes. <laughs> you know what? I'm just learning, reading about John Lithgow, his personal life. So this is interesting. Um. He actually separated from his wife after he had an affair with the actress Liv Ullman. Oh wow! Yeah, isn't that incredible? Yeah, that is that that, that is wild. <laughs> yeah, so not the not, I don't know, not the squeaky clean. Woman. No, but I, yeah, I think John Lithgow is a really fascinating guy because I think now he kind of sings like he sings like children's songs and stuff like that. He has like writes children's books i believe That's and stuff right. like that yeah he's got, kind of got this whole new like strand of his career and he's also <laughs> yeah and dexter calls his wife he's, i think there's a really famous scene where he's sort of like shut up cunt to her which is like well really like whoa <laughs> and it's like yeah i totally buy that from john, from john lifgal from my uh <laughs> from my associations from my childhood like the trinity killer's like this, this is who this guy is like wow <laughs> And also, Liv Ullman is a Norwegian actress, you know? So I just, ah, I mean, that's yes, just a coincidence. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Eyes back into but, this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, like, and also the fact that she was in Bergman's film Persona, you know, like, that is, I feel like Persona might have been, perhaps, on the Palma's mind, you know, when he was making this movie. So, um just just because of the doubling and the uncanniness and stuff but so it's an interesting connection yes yes i love that um so yeah in regards to some of some some of the early stuff i guess i yeah. guess one thing to talk about is i i, I love that that sequence we well that 
that sequence in the hotel room we first get with Dr. Nix and oh my God. I think it's Kane at that moment. And yes, we get like, uh, I, I pulled one clip from this film and it's just Kane saying this. Dickory dickory, Doc. Kane has picked his lock. <laughs> just because it, it, <laughs> it, it shows us the unhinged <gasps> nature of who Kane is, who kind of like, I don't know, he holds his cigarettes in a kind of, even in a menacing manner. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, yeah. Like, really, like, he smokes like he just, like, I don't know, like he wants to get rid of it <laughs> as quick as he can. And he's like, he's, 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 I don't know, he's, he's calculated, but he's also really unpredictable in what he'll do. And, like, you kind of, you get that in John Lithgow's physicality of playing Kane, at least. Yeah. And actually, that very scene that you refer to, um, contains my favorite line in this movie where Kane says to his dad, there's no jail that can hold me. I'm the, ex I'm the escape artist, remember? I learned it breaking out of all those cages you locked me in. Yes. And that is such a good articulation of what actually happens to people in dissociative identity disorder. You know, because ultimately it's the trauma that they don't want to confront and they're very like escapist and avoidant. Mm -hmm. They don't really want to confront what happened to them. Hence the splintering of the personality and the creation of a multiple, you know, a multitude of personalities. And ultimately these are people who are escape artists, yes. you know, psychologically. Um, and yeah, it, it just, uh, it, it was such a great line. Don't you think it's very Hitchcockian as well? I think all of it. I think this film, I think owes a massive debt. And I think, especially when you get to the end, uh, yes. has a massive debt to, to Psycho. Especially. Definitely. It's yeah. Psycho all the way. Yes. It's one of the things I, I love about it. And what I love is the framing that he uses yeah. with, or the camera angles and that, that he uses with certain, certain different, um, like, Oh, just in different scenes, he does different things. So, like when we first meet Kane in that car, mm. he's filmed on like a Dutch angle. So it's like already it's telling the audience like something is something is off because it's like the Dutch angle never feels that natural. Do you know what I mean? So you kind of you're looking at him askew, basically to kind of look at him upright. You have to tilt your head, and the way yeah. that um, the way he uses like. It's almost like a like a really wide lens when he films <laughs> Doctor Nix in that hotel room, yeah. And then we kind of get the camera looking up, I think, at Kane, and it's all very tight on him. And like, yeah, Nix, <sighs> it's all like you get the you get the the shot of the whole room and him kind of like stalking the room, and like it almost it show it, it visually it shows us this kind of control he has that even though Kane is this the loud mouth kind of no fucks given part of the, <laughs> the personalities is still caged into that corner of the room yes he is yeah very caged in very on brand for your podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah I need a klaxon every time I accidentally say caged in <laughs> No, but it's true. It's um, it's almost as if we're looking at Doctor Nix through like a peephole. It yes. feels like we're 
it feels like as viewers were compelled to become illicit spectators on this scene. Like we're just spying on something not intended for us. We're getting like this kind of secret view of something that it because feels very illicit. Yeah. You and, know, like, yeah. And I guess it really ties into that idea that is a through line throughout of all of Brian De Palma's films, even when he gets onto making like his big, one of his biggest budget films, Mission Impossible, all about <laughs> voyeurism. It's all about yes. the kind of seeing the things we, we shouldn't see. And I, I guess uh, for, for, I, I mention this every episode and I, I'm going to do it until the, the, the end of it because I think it's one of the best facts about <laughs> Brian De Palma, but he was hired by his mum to spy on his dad when he was <gasps> when he was a young when he was like a young child so, oh my god i did not know that yeah so it's kind of i guess <laughs> especially speaking to, to yourself who looks at films through a freudian lens i guess that tells <laughs> us everything we need to know about his films right oh my god that is so incredible that's a bombshell yeah and it was it, the reasoning was because his his mum and the, the at the time it must have been like the 50s um mm. couldn't get a divorce without proof basically and <laughs> uh had had suspicions that that brian de palma's father was cheating and knew that uh brian had a kind of penchant for science and kind of camera equipment and stuff like that and yeah was sent with like a telescopic lens to kind of take photos of his dad whilst he was having dalliances with another woman, which I imagine would have, again, it's surprising that he, that that's not a trauma that like uh, really affected him. Cause like uh, you could only imagine he would have been a teenager at, at, at best, I think uh, like mm -hmm. age wise. So yeah, it's a, it's a real foundation for a, for a career about spying and <laughs> like, yeah peeping into people's lives oh my god i mean i i i would love to thank brian de palma's mother for <laughs> <laughs> for, cre for creating this uh perverted little director <laughs> and i say that with utmost affection in my eyes yeah, yeah 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 that's exactly that's exactly what she did and uh well it's to talk about the perverse i guess like mm. one of the sequences in this that kind of every time i watch it blows my mind is this like portmanteau of dreams that we get in in, in the kind of like mm. early stages of the film after jenny kind of meets her ex-lover in a in a clock shop i believe it yeah. is it? and again like that that must have some significance right this whole thing of like the ticking of time and the kind of, mm -hmm. I don't know, like it, it, it gets to the end and there's a, it's almost like, again, Hitchcockian. It's, it's, and, and when we get to the, the mm. final act, there's the sundial, I guess, like the original way of yeah. telling time. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's this, this idea that the tight, like, I don't know, uh, the, 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 the time is running out for the characters. It's like the kind mm -hmm. of, um, the, what is it the clock will always, a broken clock will always tell the time like the right time at least once the, twice a day or something yeah. like that and it's there's a kind of element to that of like the 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 personalities do you know what i mean that kind of 
you're kind yeah. of one of the faces of the clock almost will tell you the right time depending on who you're speaking mm. to somewhat yeah and also i guess like the ticking bomb element because you know the clocks get reversed right mm -hmm. so she's like cr making a present of 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 this object um but in like i guess separate you know what what was it she she's giving her husband and her ex yes a clock but she was worried that she gave you know the wrong object to the wrong person yes um there there's there is a fear or an anxiety about um someone getting the wrong present right and that her feelings are going to be exposed and uh i suppose maybe also the clocks hint at what hitch what sorry i was going to say hitchcock that's a Freudian slip there what the palma <laughs> <laughs> what maybe De Palma was trying to allude to so many times in very inventive ways, I, I must add, of, um, I guess, the, what's the word? You know how you have like unreliable narrators? Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like here we have unreliable time, unre unreliable timelines. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess, I guess there is like the significance in time as well when we get into is it a dream sequence is it a memory yeah. when she's talking about um jack's uh, ex-wife who died and she was the oncologist yeah. and they have they have their kiss at midnight as well so there is that yes. thing of like time is significant in this plot in this film whether we kind of like are privy to it or not it's kind of like i guess it's something that once you kind of delve deeper into the film you can kind of pick out and you can i don't know really really chew over it what is what what like, is that thing what is it trying to tell it is it, is it anything is it a kind of macguffin that uh brian de palmer has put in because it's like oh it's a bit of fun yeah yeah exactly like is it just a red herring or is it something very specific that he's trying to reveal mm -hmm. through imagery alone so like i mean you could argue that it's all so much hinging on um, you know, it's so predicated on like perfect timing. Yes. Um, with uh, Jack, right at you know that magnificent uh, coda of the film, where the kid gets dropped from <laughs> the balcony, mm -hmm. um, or from like a higher floor, and he's he's like there, and he's, you know, that wonderful suspense of w we're wondering whether he's going to get to the kid in time is he going to catch her when she falls and he has to have perfect timing you know so i am um, there is a lot there to associate oh, yeah. over and then the thing the, the, the like one of the obstacles in his way is that he could get impaled by a sundial yeah as well so it is this thing yeah and i think throughout the film there's kind of mentions like i think carter says i i married her way too early again it's that 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 assumption of time and kind of like um I don't, yeah like arriving early to something and there's like um i think jenny like espouses to a friend in the park as well about kind of something in regards to time to jack in regards to like mm. um 
we met at the wrong time or something yeah. like that. In re- yeah. yeah. And, and again, it's all about like some of the machinations of the plot, whether it's um, how Jack is going to get found by the police eventually, all to do with him finding the clock that has a rendezvous time on there. Yes. <laughs> to, 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 to when, yeah, to when he will be there for Carter to know to send the police to the park. Like it's all, mm. yeah, it's, it's, uh, and I've pulled, I, I, I've pulled this, this, this time angle out of my ass for this as well. So uh, it's probably <laughs> going across to people, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things that's kind of come to me as we've been dis- uh, discussing the film. Yeah. I feel like there should, <laughs> we should be able to maybe find, um, through, you know, hope you know maybe some the Palma super fans out there. There may be even an, an, some kind of infographic, you know, that visually explains the timeline and uh, the various kind of divergences. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost also as if you know he's sort of playing a little bit with this thought experiment of alternate timelines occurring on a parallel you know mm-hmm. like almost like an alternate reality yeah because um, when you get to that dream sequence the, yeah the, the dream sequences within dream sequences it makes you question stuff mm-hmm. you've seen before that moment as well it's kind of like you don't know when you were in the dream when you left <laughs> like when the dream began when you left the dream it's a and it could it could easily be that cop out that it all was like this kind of i don't know like fantasy she had as she's looking at these this clock and kind of sees her ex-lover almost in a, in, yeah. in 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 a weird way and like yeah like some of the stuff that happens in the dream again like with her getting impaled by that that statue and then <laughs> we we we're led to believe before that that her having like sex with Jack in the 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 woods, like she breaks, she jumps out of that, and it's a dream. And then when we see that later in the film from Carter and Kane's perspective, it's like, what? Are, like, what are we supposed? What are we supposed to be believing right now? Like, is, is any <laughs> of this kind of what is actually happening in this film? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so true. I mean, he, this really is one of those movies that deliberately puts us in a constant like state of suspicion mm-hmm. and we almost don't trust what we're seeing because time and time again, uh there's something that is seems so deviant from, you know, really deviating from like what we've been led to believe narratively and visually. So yeah, I love this trickster spirit of De Palma. Mm-hmm. I like that he, tr- in a way, I don't think it's like trying to be trollish or like antagonizing the viewer, but it's it's making sure that as spectators, we're never comfortable watching, mm-hmm. that we're always kept like on the edge of our seat, yeah, um, ontologically, you know, in the, with this movie. So huge respect to him for that i think that's a nice provocation <laughs> and i guess like <laughs> on on a kind of uh vi- visual aspect in this film something that uh brian de palmer is is synonymous with is 
beautiful tracking shot and we get one in oh, this film yeah. with uh is it dr wendelheim um mm. who again has the thankless task of uh like just giving the audience a load of exposition about what happened <laughs> with dr nicks and his kind of experiments of on the book they were working on in regards to looking into um multiple personalities and how they are formed and she came yeah. to the realization that he must have been his test subject must have been a child of his and like she first when she first comes in she like sees carter and is like the the it's, the, it's uncanny like back to something you're, you're kind of like <laughs> interested in that kind of the, that the idea of the double he is he is the double of his dad and it's uh but yeah, yes. that, let's let's talk about that shot because it's four minutes and fourteen seconds, I believe, and the stuff that I don't know is it almost teeters on the thing of taking you out of the film because you kind of watch it and go, "This is impressive." <laughs> yeah, yeah, great take. Yeah, um, and he's obviously working with pros here who are never out of their alignment and you know the physical aspect of creating a shot like that is mm. so demanding and so challenging and um i think they just did a brilliant job the choreography of it the how inventive he would have had to have been with the camera work mm -hmm. and just the kind of the charisma of all the lead performers in that scene keeps us really engaged the only thing as you rightly said that might snap us out of the suspension of the, this belief is suddenly becoming aware of what you're looking at and thinking how the hell did they do that <laughs> yeah it, i think there's a moment where like the camera tilts as they go down the stairs and then like mm -hmm. you, you keep thinking as well like when's it gonna cut when's it gonna cut and then yeah like, you think it's gonna happen when they go in the elevator and then it continues and again it's kind of I guess props has to go to Stephen H. Burham, like a kind of um, a long-time collaborator with Brian De Palma to kind of hear hear Brian's ideas and go, yeah, we can do that. It will take us a day to rehearse that shot and then maybe another day to, to, to film it, but we could do it. And yeah, in that lift, like, like it, it keeps bouncing back between uh, the back of the lieutenant's head the other cop and we see um the doctor in there as well and it is just like i don't know it's it's it's, it's visual crack for me like I'm a, I'm a i'm a massive fan of anything that's a one take like mm -hmm. I, I, th I think when uh true detective came out and like somebody said oh there's an episode like deep into the series that's got like a, a ridiculously long one take i was like that's it i'm watching the series and then obviously it was one over because it, it was an amazing series but yeah, yeah. If, if someone says to me like there's a there's a, a long shot in a film i'm like i'm there i'm there do you know what I mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean obviously um we can read this as another hitchcockian uh oh, of homage course. here with rope um which is great I mean, yeah, it's it's always nice to see this kind of like, I guess, the skill set of a director like this. And mm -hmm. I like it when when auteurs show off. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and 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 that's the thing. Like, there's something about the the look of the film. I guess for some people, it it kind of looks. It can look quite televisual. It looks mm-hmm. like a '90s movie, right? And I guess yeah, but that that again feels like a stylistic choice and a decision. Yeah, yeah, because everything like it feels quite soapy at times. Like, I'm not <laughs> sure if you get that. Like, it has this like almost like haze of a soap opera about it in the way it's kind of the the way the dialogue goes with the kind of the gossiping mm. in the park this kind of like <laughs> this this sexy mysterious man appears like in the film and it, it is like i don't know it's like two um two pages of a recipe book have got stuck together like in, in the <laughs> episode of friends and it's kind of like you've I'm just make it anyway and this is yeah this is a this is a beef trifle of a film of kind of slamming up <laughs> this psychological horror with this very melodramatic soapy elements that he kind I of love the way you put in. that <laughs> actually you know what it, it really reminded me of <clears throat> let me just say that again you know what it really reminded me of is um you know like on Channel 5. Yes. Sometimes you get those American made-for-TV movies Mm -hmm. that only play, like, in the afternoon on weekdays on Channel 5. (laughs) Yeah. They've got lifetime movies, right? Or would it be that? You know what I mean? Normally, like, based on a true story and then kind of a little bit of seasoning's been added to them to make them a bit more risque and a bit more salacious for, like, I, I guess like stay-at-home mums, I guess would have been their yeah their demographic to begin with. Yeah, that's the aesthetic, and it's they all look like they've all been shot in the '90s for some reason. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. some of them were later or earlier, but it is it is that '90s aesthetic, and I think you're right. I think that De Palma would have maybe seen this occurring a lot in that particular start of the decade and maybe he thought ah this could be a good way of disarming the audience Mm -hmm. by kind of lulling them into a comfortable state of viewership thinking that oh okay aesthetically I'm aligned with something as you say quite soapy you know like um not anything that would feel too radical it's 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 the opposite it's very like diluted, you know, like when Lolita Davidovich is like filmed in those like very um, soft focus lenses, yes. you know, Vaseline almost on the lens. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I would have thought that he would have approached the project with a very self-aware, um, you know, decision to to make it look like that. Mm-hmm. And actually exploit those tendencies from from the decade, precisely just to disarm us, so that we then feel even more shock mm-hmm. when the really bizarre stuff starts to happen. You know? Yeah. Well, like, and I think that's what works differently in the um, in the director's cut of the film is mm. that that it all starts with all of that kind of Jenny stuff, and it is like all the soft focus and stuff like that, and this this old flame and stuff like that so it's even more kind of disarming when it gets to the 
the craziness that Carter and his multiple personalities are getting up to later on in the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the way the way like one of yeah one of the things I noticed about this film watching it is like it's an hour and thirty one minutes long. Mm. but moves at such like a great clip and it's kind of do you know what I mean like the way the film like it moves like when you once you kind of get out of the uh dream sequences that we kind of get the the Carter and Kane uh, viewpoint of it whether it's is it him uh well yeah it's him ki- it goes from you think it's a dream of him killing uh, Jenny with the pillow, mm. or at least like thinks he kills her, uh, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then cuts back to him at the park and kind of like talking to that, that babysitter who's kind of there smoking oh, outside yeah. of toilets and stuff like that, and we see the kind of machinations of how he intends to to frame Jack, and then we get that the the other side of what. Uh, Jenny's kind of been traumatized by or kind of in in her dreams of seeing Carter when she's kind of having this (laughs) dalliance in the woods with Jack (laughs) yeah yeah that was um and the way that it's shot as well you know this um this this dizzying uh camera motion um you know this uh you know really putting us in as viewers in the position of like if we are watching it at home like rewinding and pausing like what was that you yes. know <laughs> like just this impulse of wanting to know because you've just been shown just a glimmer and yeah i think it's genius um i have to admit i also really like that he cast you know in the role of the babysitter that actress who was in uh, Beverly Hills 90210 <laughs> <laughs> Like really adding to this conceptual kind of red herring of creating this sort of like benign, you know, early 90s kind of easy viewing, soap operatic, like kind of like squeaky clean almost, you know? Yeah. Very polished, um, but ultimately inoffensive stuff. And it's, it's, it's just totally like a misdirection because when he is in that scene and then we see is it josh who appears oh yeah so that's a really like disarming moment when a a little boy comes out of the toilet with like an adult's voice oh my god that really scared me i remember like when i was a a youngster and i first watched that movie that was the scariest scene for me (laughs) because it's so it, it was just so unexpected to to hear that voice coming out of that kid's mouth (laughs) And then finally, like, tying the loose end at the end, and we realize this is actually another personality, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So clever. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think, like, what is great about the film is the way that it starts off as, like, a soap opera. And then by the end, when we get to, like, that that showdown at the hotel, it's like we are in full, like, it's almost like a, a... uh, a theme park attraction version of a Brian De Palma film. Do you know what I mean? We kind of have like these figure. It's, yeah, it's almost like you know, like these I don't know Pirates of the Caribbean s rides where you kind of and it's like yeah, the characters jump out at you and kind of a thing. It's like we've got a tick list of 
oh, that's like oh, and other films as well i guess like even even down to the coat that amy's wearing i i couldn't help but think of don't look now like with yeah the, 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 the red coat and the kind of again a film that deals with i guess uh uh like neglectful parents in a way or kind of like being caught, uh-huh. caught up in your own world and not realizing because yeah i guess that's what in a way like the film <laughs> could be saying about jenny is she's kind of like she's so wrapped up in this romance yeah. and this kind of dalliance and that that she hasn't seen the fact that her husband is kind of under the guise of studying their daughter for mm. child psychology reasons has has been living with these multiple personalities and doing this heinous <laughs> shit for I can only imagine like years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this has all just been going on right under her nose. But she, because she's so preoccupied with you know uh, all kinds of like marital mm-hmm. uh, or extramarital, I should say, um, <laughs> preoccupations that the well-being of her kid is like the least of her concern. Um, yeah, definitely. I saw shades of the Don't Look Now there, but also Peeping Tom. Yes, yes. I've, I've seen that. It's a film I haven't seen, but like when researching the film, it's kind of mm-hmm. always checkmarked as something that it's, it's psycho by the way of Peeping Tom in, in, in the way that it's put together this film in some regards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, without giving anything away about Peeping Tom, it's really... The emphasis, I think, that gets picked up here is the um, obscene impulse of a kind of mad scientist father Mm -hmm. running experiments on children, you know, and his own children, actually. So, um, yeah, and how this will always be registered as trauma Mm -hmm. on the experimented upon child and they they then feel the urge to repeat that pattern of ultimately abuse. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think um, I think that there there are some fantastic influences here. Um, I'm now suddenly remembering that very kind of bizarre moment at right at the beginning of this movie when when John Lithgow sneezes and like just splash you know like just spurts all this horrible stuff <laughs> yes on, on on the woman in the car and then chloroform yeah like, yeah 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 that's what i mean like and i guess like yeah i've got that unique perspective having watched the, the other cut first like that being like yeah. the opening scene but like again to to talk about what um sam asher said about the film is the theatrical cut has like that Hitchcocky intention because we know as an audience we know this about Carter so when we have those moments of him with Amy and like or just kind of other children in general or kind of the the scenes he shares with Jenny it's like we know that this we've seen the bomb under the table like we we yeah. just we just like you're there almost going like get out of there jenny like he's he's not a good guy <laughs> i know yeah exactly it's just um yeah it's playing on so many fantastic psychological mm-hmm. uh things i'm thinking now of the kept grass syndrome you know this misidentification delusion which is a type of psychosis oh, amazing. where 
a spouse becomes convinced that their significant other that they live with, even though they look exactly like their husband or wife, has actually been replaced by an identical looking imposter. Whoa. (laughs) It's so crazy. Like people actually believe that, you know, the person they live with, they've lived with for years, they've been married, you know, they know this person so well. At some stage with Capgras syndrome, it's that they truly believe that they've actually been replaced by a doppelganger and that their real spouse is somewhere else, you know, somewhere out there. And I feel like this movie is really trying to represent that, but that at the heart of that diagnosis is something actually much more common that people might experience, which is you think you know someone really well, yeah, but then they do something to radically surprise you and you never thought they'd be capable of doing that. So then you start to doubt if if you go into full-fledged psychosis that this is in fact not the person you married. Well, and I, I, I guess you can look at like the inciting incident in Carter's life that might have reawoken because I imagine there would have been like the, I don't know, the years of them being married before or knowing each other before that he would have kept this at bay. So like, I can, yeah. I can only like theorize that it was the birth of their daughter that kind of awoken something within Carter yeah. somewhat, like to kind of bring all this dark side and these different sides of him cascading back out. Like, mm-hmm. and I, 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 I think... I think in that regard, it kind of says something to that fear of being like a parent and stuff like that. And that, that, that fear of always feeling like you're going to make the same mistakes that your parents made in raising you. Mm -hmm. And I guess that is, that is like beating throughout this whole film and would have made a lot of sense because yeah, as, as I said earlier, Brian De Palma made this film locally because his wife at the time was pregnant so mm-hmm. i'd imagine that would have probably been like playing on his mind do you know what i mean it's like am i going to get to mm. a point and i'm going to make my son or daughter spy <laughs> spy on their 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 mum. do you know what i mean am i going to make mm. these same mistakes that they made with me and I, I guess that like that is yeah that that for me is something that this film is definitely maybe not overtly saying, but at least it's in the subtext. Of, oh, definitely. Of what the film is about. That is, that is running, um, you know, very much as a kind of underpinning principle in this movie. Mm-hmm. The anxiety that you will unwittingly, mm. um, and you know, despite your best efforts, that you know, this fatalistic, almost Greek tragedy yeah. level of a narrative that you're going to, you're doomed, you're destined to repeat the, the mistakes of your parents. And that that has been so deeply coded in you, those yeah. traumas, those early formative experiences, that you, you have no free will in the matter, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, so, it's so part of your psychological D- DNA. And you're simply just, unfortunately, like, going to repeat that cycle of abuse um, and it's out of your hand. You know, you're just a passenger at that point. Something else is governing you and compelling you to do this. 
Yeah, definitely. I would have thought this, you know, the, the filmmaker's anxieties in his own personal life in relation to his own family would have um, informed, you know, a lot of things in this movie. In regards to, to that, there's... I don't know, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel safe enough to say this because we're behind a paywall. But like, mm. yeah, I became a parent in 2018, and at okay. the start of lockdown, like I, I ended up, I ended up, it was kind of perfect timing. I ended up in therapy, uh, kind of like talking about issues and stuff like that. And one of the things that came from it was talking about that anxiety of making those mistakes yeah as a parent because like as a as a kid i'd i don't know like looking back now i had a very like uh emotionally and psychologically abusive uh father when i was younger mm -hmm. uh, and he put me on like a pedestal when i was like really young and like speaking to my mum and like a lot of it like I don't know. I'm always jealous when people can remember like lots of memories from their childhood. I'm like, I can't really remember a lot. And I'm sure that like, if I, sp if I spent the money and spoke to somebody, I could probably unlock some repressed stuff yeah. <laughs> that's there. But like, uh, yeah, talking to my mom, she kind of said that there was like a, a total change in the child that I was after that had happened, like after he had left. Right. And like, uh, because of like being put on a pedestal there is there was that really played on my mind and i ended up talking in therapy about that like that just fear that no matter what i do <laughs> i'm gonna make that that mistake yeah. and like and then like it was compounded by the thing of like oh am i gonna now be too harsh on my son because of my like fear that mm. i'm gonna make that do you know what i mean and it kind of like spiraled out into this thing of like how, like what is gonna happen with this do you know what I mean am I gonna yeah am I gonna make those same mistakes or am I gonna try and push too far in the other direction and make a whole whole new bunch of mistakes but I guess they would be my mistakes so at least they're not they're not history repeating themselves but yeah I guess I don't know I guess that's why I picked up on that thread with this film it's like it's something that yeah being be, being a parent I imagine I don't know depending unless you've there are lucky people out there whose parents were great and uh, they, they don't have any, but they're, they're the boring ones, right? So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't know why I felt the need to share that, but yeah, I think it gives it gives context, right? To, yeah, to why to why I saw that in this film. No, um, and everything you said as is really relatable. Um, you know, I think this is actually a very normal and actually a very functional anxiety to have. Yes. I would have thought if you're a parent and you're aware of your own upbringing and you're negotiating that with how you want to raise a kid. And I think it's 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 probably a really healthy sign that <laughs> this would become like a concern for you if you didn't want to make um, mistakes that your own parents made. I can only speculate because I'm, I'm not a mother, mm -hmm. um, but I can, I, I don't mind telling you that the, the conscious decision I made to not have kids of my own um, was very much, um, I guess, decided on the fact that 
uh, I didn't have a very positive upbringing myself. Yes. And my mom was, my mom was the, uh, the villain in our household. <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't feel that I had a good, um, I, I guess I just never felt that mothering was not modeled to me in a healthy way. Yes. And in my case, it was pretty extreme and I never felt that I could fully recover from that stuff to then be able to raise a kid. And I mean, you can never be perfect, of course, but yeah. at least in a functional way, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I do relate to what you're saying, honestly. Like, I, I, I understand. Yeah. But I think you deciding to have a kid anyway and be involved in a kid's life and raise them is you know it's a heroic thing yeah um, uh, so yeah we could talk about this off mic but the uh choice might not have been the case in this matter but it's, it's okay it's, it's, it's yeah it's something we could talk about we'll leave that we'll leave that carrot dangling for the for the listeners to to, 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 to want to get to know me as a as a person maybe yeah. i'll regale my tail to them uh, so let's <laughs> let 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 let's let's move away from our own trauma and talk about the trauma that, uh, yeah. <laughs> that Carter O'Keefe and his his band of merry personalities inflict mm-hmm. on people. And I guess yeah, as we uh, as we draw to the end, we kind of talk about the yeah the the climax of this film. And I guess it kind of happens. Mm. Like I think there is a a sea change in this film where it kind of becomes something different. And it is after that ma- that one shot, and we get that uh, like amazing way to end that shot as well with the reveal of the face on in the oh, morgue yeah. underneath that sheet. And yeah, I I watched it the other night in this this little shed that I record in. And I was I was mm. petrified. I was like, even though I knew what was coming, I was like, <laughs> still, it's like, and again, is I guess have to give props to uh the composer uh yeah pino oh i was on the wrong tab uh, <laughs> um <laughs> i should know this he's a he's a oh pino Donaggio, yeah a regular mm-hmm. regular uh de palma collaborator but yeah mm. the way the score works and then yeah after that is when the wheels start to come off right when when it's revealed that jenny is alive and well and kind of confronts carter in their home after he tries to kill her by I don't, well yeah like the body in the morgue that's the woman mm. from the beginning right the, the, yes <laughs> yeah so <laughs> she was in the trunk of the car who's been in that trunk for you can only imagine days right at this yeah. point which is horrifying yes <laughs> it is <laughs> um so yeah, let's talk about the scene with uh, Doctor Waldheim and uh, oh, Carter, yeah. Josh, Margot oh my God. in the interrogation room. What do you make of that scene, Mary? Um, yeah, I really thought that it was executed in a very interesting way because it's still very much working within the kind of significant you know signifying chain of the aesthetics of its time so you're kind of like you're half taking it seriously but what they're saying is so kind of like harrowing 
and it's so spooky when the changes occur, like when the when the kind of alter, um, as we you know, as the cur- the current uh, terminology for dissociative identity disorder is alters. You know, the different personalities emerge, and um, so it's just this kind of interesting contrast between once again the staging of the scene the the costume the, the just the whole setup and actually something quite terrifying um suddenly becoming known and we understand the extent to which this person is just uh, you know really uh, unhinged mm-hmm. psychologically yeah. uh w- when he turns into is the is the female altar Margot, yeah, and that Margot that reveal like when Josh is saying like Margot is behind you, and that slow pan oh, yeah. around the room, it's just kind of like the the hairs on the back of your neck stand oh. up, and then it's kind of culminates in him at one point turning to the camera as well, yeah. and it is just like kind of oh really like <laughs> I don't, I don't know what it is about this kind of matriarch of these personalities that like it's terrifying right yes (laughs) yes it is because you know what it is i think it's the kind of um temptation that maybe the female altar will be a bit more benevolent you know maybe we can get a a little reprieve from cain (laughs) and the sadistic father you know like maybe we can we can have something potentially softer in this female altar and it's 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 not it's actually anything but because now we have margot emerging and she it's not just that she is brutally violent it's that she's wordless she doesn't say anything yes yeah and that that is very disturbing you know because uh in a movie whenever wordlessness or silence or lack of articulation is introduced, I feel like it's a very aggressive movement in the direction of something being unconscious. Yeah, even like um, before you get to like silence, like the, the, the scariest, some of the scariest characters in films are those people who can give that gentle whisper oh, and it be yeah. menacing as opposed to, what is it? It's a... Uh, the the loudest person in the room is the loneliest person in the room, and that's why yes. they have to be loud. So it's like that quiet one. I think yeah, this is back to like the things you're told as a kid. It's the quiet ones you've got to like watch out for, and like using that in this. And again, back to John Lithgow's mannerisms. Like he kind of lets us know, like we know as an audience, Margot before he gives the nod. Mm-hmm. And the way he kind of contorts his body again with the the high shoulders and the kind of I don't know he, the, yeah like the gestures he gives and he, the way he holds his arms is like oh, yeah masterclass in acting of kind of really and I guess that the Margot aspect of it is Brian De Palma referencing himself right with Dress to Kill exactly <laughs> yes exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and this kind of like the cross-dressing, right? Um, because when this uh, female doctor, uh, you know, the I guess she's a psychiatrist, we can mm-hmm. say, yeah. um, w- when she first alludes to her wig, 
um, early on in that kind of long exposition. Uh, one take. Yeah, I love that because right? it's like, oh, like, <laughs> oh, this wig. I wish they'd got me a grey wig. I'm oh, my hair's grey. Why have they? And I think she says I look like a transvestite in this. Yeah, wig. she does. Yes. Because it's so obviously a wig, you yeah, know. Chekhov's and wig, right? <laughs> totally, totally. And so that it's it was funny when I I remember first watching it, and that detail was not apparent to me. I was not paying attention to that. It was only in the rewatch yeah. recently that it really stood out to me that she should refer to her wig, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, that's that's so funny, like it seems to come out of nowhere, you know, <laughs> yeah. and. Like, what is the reasoning for this? I had kind of forgotten what ha- what went on later on. And then, of course, we realized that it's like a convenient uh, plot point for, uh, <laughs> you know, this, this, this lunatic to escape. <laughs> yeah. And even like th- 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 there's parts of this film where obviously logic falls down when Jenny sees, has obviously met the, has met the psychiatrist who... Mm-hmm. Is far smaller than John Lithgow, and then when she sees John Lithgow dressed in the wig, leave the leave the <laughs> police station or the hospital, is like going, Doctor Waldheim, uh, like has has left, and she's gone to the hotel where where like gone to this hotel. It's like that's like a six foot five man. Yeah. Like that is a, that is a barefoot six foot five man in a woman's trench coat. <laughs> I know it's it's so funny like it just is it's so outlandish that it's details like that that make you feel that you're in a you're in a foreign space here like psychologically you're in a dream space you're it's some kind of dream logic because nobody else would fall for that yeah it's 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 totally outlandish (laughs) but when like when we get to because yeah again when we get to the hotel which I think Mm -hmm. It's like an emergence of loads of Brian De Palma films. So we have the like Odessa yeah. Steps element with the baby carriage from The Untouchables. Mm-hmm. We have these like group of guys who look like they're extras out of Body Double, like <laughs> kind of yeah. like like I don't know, it's like, it's like they're just like kind of shouting nondescript things across the like causeway and like balconies. <laughs> And they're like, we get again, we get like Chekhov sundial where it's like, oh, watch out for the sundial, man. And then <laughs> we've got the dress to kill element with Margot like hiding in the lift in in the long mm-hmm. trench coat and the wig. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I I love it that it is all just kind of a that's that that's that that's that from that film. I'm cribbing from my own like work here <laughs> to kind of. Go, oh totally go, you missed me well i'm back and here's here's, here's, <laughs> here's references to all the stuff that i've done before that you loved yeah totally like th- exactly it's like this wonderful um de palma free-for-all <laughs> yeah 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 it's like enter the de palma verse almost do you know what i mean the the de palma <laughs> verse of madness like yeah yeah. Or, or, or yeah, any, any other Marvel, I don't know. No, no way De Palma, I don't know. I don't know. But also I would say, you know, the slow motion uh you know, build up to the violence just like in Carrie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, 
the only thing it was missing was split screen to really yes. give us like a which I think could have, <laughs> could have definitely been done like it would have been good. oh totally it would have been great to see like a split screen of what's happening on the balcony juxtaposed yeah. with Jack trying to save the, the the daughter as she falls down and then we get one of the things I love in that is we get um the act, uh, actor who was in Body Double as well. I think it's uh, uh, Greg Henry, the guy who plays the like villain in Body Double. Oh yeah, yeah. He, he's he's the police guy, and like he goes to catch the the girl as well, and kind of like his <laughs> arms crisscross over his body in a very like dramatic way to say like, <laughs> oh, I missed her, so, to add to the tension of the whole scene. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I was actually thinking the same about the split screen being in that precise moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would have that would have been just like the cherry on the top yes. of of yeah, this yeah. um, De Palma extravaganza. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what, what do you think of that 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 sequence? That kind of whole um, I don't know, like melange of what's going on and the mm-hmm. kind of just the tension again that the strings are are ramping up really high and it's it's a lot of slow-mo as well right a lot of of slow-mo yeah it's it's beautiful it's beautiful i think it's wonderful it's like watching something as graceful as the ballet in my in my book i mean honestly the the sheer thought that was given to the choreography and the amount of um you know, technical work that would have had to have been done with these actors, their alignment, their posture. It's so balletic to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm i a big fan of stuff like this. And, um, you know, this is the sort of thing that sets him apart. Um, it, it's And I love that he leans so hard into it. He doesn't try and apologize for it. He doesn't try and shrink himself away from those impulses. This is the kind of director that you know, knows his forte and you know he gets enjoyment out of setting up a spectacle like this, you know? Um, and I, I really like that. I like, you, you just feel the thrill of the director through the image and it moves through you as well as an audience member. So this is a wonderful finale. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I think like it is only top by the end of the film itself. <gasps> oh my god! Which yes. is beautiful. Can, can yeah? Can can you tell me and the listeners, Mary, w- how this film plays out in its final moments? Oh my god! Well, um, <laughs> they're back in the playground. <laughs> Jenny's not learned her lessons from from all the things we've seen throughout the film. She's still back to not gossiping on a bench. Gossiping on a bench. It's all filmed in, again, soft focus. And yeah, she, the, the little kid sort of like disappears out of view once again. And um, Jenny goes after her daughter. And I have to say that the cinematography here is, again, very... I don't know if it's trying to deceive us or is it trying once again to suggest that this is a dream sequence mm-hmm. because it all looks very soft, very glowing. Yeah. Um, you know, what time of day is this? It's very like uncanny. 
and uh, it's beautiful. And I and also Jenny looks so cheerful and calm yeah. when her little kid is missing. Like after everything you've been through, have you learned nothing? Like she's got this smile on her face, and she's like, "Oh, there you are," you know. <laughs> yeah, and the fact that like she's just been saying that Carter is still out there as well. Right. Like, it's not like she's like. Yeah, no, he got picked up in Reno, and like he's 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 been locked away. Like, it's like he's out there, but I'm still gonna tiptoe around in the woods after my daughter in, in the most calm and composed manner possible. Yeah, exactly. Like it's just you know you've literally just admitted that he hasn't been apprehended, and it's just the kind of very blasé style of parenting yeah. that um, is is concerning. <laughs> <laughs> and um <laughs> which which again makes me really think that maybe it is supposed to be coded as a dream because she just seems too relaxed mm-hmm. for um the circumstances and then of course uh when when she um sort of like lifts up her daughter after finding her uh in this secluded part of the of the park um which is incidentally also where she had her romantic encounter. Yes. Yeah. I think that is, I think that's important. You know, I think the location is, you know, the doubling of the location is also significant. There's something he wants us to know about that. But anyway, so in this exact spot where she um, betrayed her husband, uh, we actually see... Kane, I believe. Is it Kane? I mean, or is it Margot? It's Who Margo. is this? He's in full. It's he's, yeah, he's in. He's in full. He's in, he's full, in full drag. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I just drag, I just, drag I'm, to the nines. Yeah. I mean, I just I never know who is truly dominating, but it is Margot because he's also wordless, um, and he's in full drag wearing that uh, really bright red kind of, uh, I guess, like power suit. It's like power suit. Yeah. And the makeup is so extreme as well. He looks really unhinged, I have to say. It is very, I, I mean, I don't know if he was trying to hark to, I don't know, the madness of Norman Bates, mm-hmm. uh, that crazed look in his eyes, you know, when Norman Bates <laughs> appears dressed as his mother. Um there is that slightly mad eyes thing going on with him that made me think it's very Norman Bates. Mm-hmm. And that's where the movie ends. Yeah. And I, I think as well, because Amy keeps saying like, oh, no, daddy is here. And then like, obviously like gets into <laughs> her mom's arms and says like, mummy. And then that's when like, it's revealed that Margot is behind. It and is Margot. Yeah. yeah. And that's it's, it. ter- it's terrifying. It's, like, it's terrifying. What a place yes, to is. end a film. It's like, yes. Like you kind of forgive it for all of its like small foibles it has, because it's like you had this batshit idea and you have seen it to its batshit conclusion. <laughs> and you've got to have respect yeah. for anyone who does that. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I love when someone goes, you know, the whole nine yards with their lunacy. Yes. Um, they don't retreat away from it. They don't apologize for it. They don't try and, you know, uh, recover, you know, some logical ground. No, <laughs> they're staying in this madhouse. And, um, you know, they're a permanent resident. I just think that it's, it's so kind of it's it's really genius actually because it really 
um, makes us think that the most crazed scene has concluded. Yes. So we're, we're sort of like, okay, you know, we can kind of, we're just anticipating the credits at this point. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's a great, it's a great little addition. Yes. Great little, like, like little, little drop off at the end. Well, yeah, that is Raising Cain. And I, I have to mention uh, here, mm -hmm. this film got the best tagline ever, which is demented, deranged, deceptive, De Palma. <laughs> Oh my god, he really likes to have fun, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, like that, that. I think that tagline tells you the type of film you are watching, and the way it's stylized as well on the poster. It's yeah. all of the words are separated with the like separate de as well. So, yeah, oh, <laughs> like, so I see. It's a, the, the, it's a full pun on on De Palma for on whole his thing. name. Yeah, and it, like it that tells you <laughs> what you're going to get right from from. Like yeah, if you're gonna sell a film, that that's how you do it. Is is kind of uh, I don't know those words and playing it into your own name. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. No. Exactly. And really, kind of leading us to, down this path of knowing what to expect in terms of self-reference, mm -hmm. not kind of um, not trying to downplay that. Really making making that a part of the the attraction. Yes. Um, it's really one for fans, I think. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, it's great. It's it, it is such a load of fun, and there, you know, it, it there's so many unexpected things about it. I'm sure that I still want really want to try and make sense of the significance of that location in the park. Mm -hmm. Why it should matter that she loses the daughter and then finds her there, and um. And Margot appears at that exact spot because it's such a critical point. And if you're looking topographically at a movie and the psychological significance um, within the framing of that, I can only think that, you know, I guess it's just. Well, I, I would assume that, yeah. like, I would assume that Margot lured her there because you do hear, like, Amy's oh, yeah. name called. So it's obviously like a thing of like this is where you like, yeah. This is where you wrong. Do you know what I mean? This is kind of like the nexus point of of things oh, going yeah. wrong. For for wow. But th th this is kind of I don't know. Yeah, like, I think that's accurate. It was intentionally de depicted by Margot mm -hmm. as um, as a place to lure Amy. And uh, yeah, you're right. It is a center point of a lot of different emotions yes. and betrayal. Yes, 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 yes. Well, one thing I wanted to mention before we before we wrap this up and see how Brian uh -huh. De Palma compares to Francis Ford Coppola at this time is, is this film an influence on, I know a film that you're very fond of, Malignant. <laughs> is this, is, 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 is Malignant, like, is, is that a, is that the demon seed of Raising Cain? <laughs> I would like to think so. I would be so thrilled if I had confirmation from James Wan that Malignant was uh, influenced in a very conscious way by Raising Cain and certainly De, De Palma. Well, yes, I can see the link. Well, yeah, because it, 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 again, it plays with that whole kind of raw tension and kind of like quite hamminess of yes. both of them because like, 
I know a lot of people have gripes <laughs> with like the the acting and the kind of the, the <laughs> act one of Malignant, but like again, it feels knowing in the way that De Palma is like knowing about kind of playing upon like soap opera tropes and that kind of aesthetic, yeah. and it feels like that's what James Wan is doing in malignant as and in well. malignant yeah like that that sh- sharp contrast between the very sort of almost wooden uh performances at the beginning mm-hmm. where you think you're watching like again it's like is it a lifetime movie mm-hmm. you know is this channel five on on a <laughs> thursday afternoon you know what am i looking at over here you know yeah. and it's a total misdirection you know it is it's it's the ultimate trick of making you feel disarmed and you thinking that you're on like predictable territory here mm. and just the just the sheer like oh just it's 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 savagely uh mental <laughs> like that's the only way i can describe it it is so hysterical and yeah totally hammy and i i like that i like when something is intentionally like that Mm -hmm. and and it's going for those money shots you know and of course like just in terms of concept the splitting of personality following Mm -hmm. trauma um you know especially childhood trauma yes yeah we're we're seeing that for sure um yeah because i i I know when malignant came out everyone was going oh it's very like jalo inspired but i think everyone was kind of trying to be too too self-serious about it and not looking closer to home it's like there's a lot of like american journalists and kind of like commentators on film who said that it's like you've had brian de palma under your nose the whole time who was kind of <laughs> fucked around in this playground for, for, for at the exact same time that, that, that dario gento and mario Bava and yeah like and it's like they, I, I guess i don't know yeah you can I would, yeah. Now, now I'm kind of like, I I want somebody to ask that question to James Bond. Yes. Just be like, yo, did you watch Raising Kane before you write the script for Malignant? I think you, I think you're absolutely spot on. I think that um, Brian De Palma was the Gabriel of Malignant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he, he, he he was that dirty voice on the back of your head. The whole time, it wasn't the whole time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. The misdirect is is Dario Argento. The, the, oh yeah, the, the ugly face of it all is Brian De Palma. I oh, love it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, obviously, this whole series is looking at the films of the movie brats, and I just wanted to draw the com- not even a comparison, but mm. looking at a f- um, to see if any of the other movie brats had made a film that messed around with the same kind of concepts or looked at the whole idea of um this associate uh the uh I, I i i need to stop saying split personality but i think i've said it too much this people know that i'm not a bad guy at this point uh, <laughs> yeah, of course uh but yeah the, the only one i could find was yeah uh, martin scorsese's shutter island mm-hmm. is, is a film that obviously deals with a, a similar topic in a very different way right yes yes um, what do you think about Cronenberg's Dead Ringers? 
I've never seen Dead Ringer. That is like on my list of... No way. Yeah, that is on my list of films to watch. Yeah, I'm, uh, Cronenberg, is, there's like a big gaping hole in my film uh-huh. knowledge of like... Uh, like uh, of, of films. I've seen a lot of like the later works. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. I've, I've seen like Cosmopolis and uh, uh-huh. Maps to the Stars and I've seen yeah. Crash and The Fly. Um but yeah, like uh, some of that, and that's a film that like really, I know, I'll, I know, I'll love it. Like I think you'll I've, love it. I've seen, I've seen the imagery of it, the kind of them in the the the, <laughs> the red gowns and stuff like that, and yeah, mm-hmm. it's uh, yeah, I think yeah, the hospital gown. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, 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 I know enough about it to know that it's very much my shit. Oh yeah, this is. Um... This will be one that you will truly appreciate. It suits you down to the ground. <laughs> it is so good and so weird and 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 clever. Um, <laughs> so I would I would nominate this one as comparable. Perfect. I won't say why because I don't want to spoil it for you. Perfect, perfect. But um, it's not in the way that you think. Okay. Um, so, but it is like I think. Yeah, I think it's not a it's not a twin, but it's like a cousin. Okay, 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 <laughs> perfect. Well, um, I, I I know you normally rate things in a binary, but for for the sake of mm. this podcast, Mary, um, mm. how many personalities out of five are you giving this film? Oh, I'm giving it five personalities. Perfect, perfect. This is this is this is what I like to hear. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's of a fun. humdinger. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a, it's a it's a lot of fun. Um. We yeah we've gone through the tropes that this film has. We've kind of talked about the Hitchcockian aspects. Um, mm-hmm. Does this film contain any nepotism? Is something I ask. And the mm. only thing I could find is it is mm-hmm. produced by uh, Brian De Palma's then wife, I believe, is one of the producers oh. on this film, who is Gail Ann Hurd. So you know these Hollywood types like to. Like to mess oh around with nepotism. God. I only ask that question because the Coppola family are famous for it. Of course. <laughs> um, I don't know if I, I don't know of any other like connections in that regard. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with um, your answer. Yeah, perfect. I'll, I'll claim it as my own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess yeah, I guess the only other one would be getting his old mate in back from. Uh, body double but that's probably of course i just like that actor uh so yeah um yeah i like to end these by looking to see if um the director in question had a better year than francis ford coppola and this mm. film was released in 1992 the francis ford coppola film that was released in 1992 was bram stoker's dracula Ooh. uh would you like to guess which one did better at the box office mary i'm gonna i'm gonna guess that it was raising cane oh so the budget of raising cane was 12 million dollars and the box office return was 37.1 bram Mm -hmm. stoker's dracula had a budget of 40 million dollars and a return of 215.9 215.9 million no yeah that was a, that was oh a hit. my I, god that, i guess that was the last 
Francis Ford Coppola hit. Well, maybe Jack. No, Jack was a stinker. Yeah. Why did I think that this movie laughed <laughs> at the box office? Maybe it's, you know what it is? I was, I think I just unfairly judged it because I kept hearing how bad the like English accents were. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's, this is going to put off Americans, but they wouldn't care about that. Yes, Keanu Reeves, Winona, and Winona Ryder, Ryder, Gary Oldman, and Sir Anthony Hopkins, and Tom It's a great Wa- cast. Yeah, Tom, Wa- like, there's, there's people you forget that are even in that film. And then, Sadie like, you Frost. Can, yeah, you watch it again, you're like, shit, Sadie Frost is in this. And, like, again, we're like, Sir Anthony Hopkins, like, he turns up pretty late in the game, in the whole thing of it. And then there's the whole Tom Waits thing playing Renfield. Which- yeah. Oh my God. I really like the film. Don't get me wrong. I have um I find it very entertaining and very stylish to look at. It's just I just assumed it had flopped, but I <laughs> I really didn't. It was a smash hit. I guess totally wrong. <laughs> so in your opinion though, which film are you going to more? Are you going to watch Dracula or Raising Cain? Which one are you gonna pick? Ooh. It's a tough one because I do really love Dracula as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I love looking at it. I think it's just ravishing. But I I just think that in this instance, um, Raising Cain has the edge for me. Yeah, I think, I, I think obviously the money says that Francis Ford Coppola had a better year. Yes, he did. But... <laughs> But I think there is something commendable to be said about Brian De Palma that even after all this time and like kind of because for me of the kind of movie brats like was the one who was maybe like the most consistent like the wall the wheels didn't fall off completely when he hit Mm. the 80s he kind of I mean rode the way for a little bit and it, it fell apart a little bit maybe the turn of the decade when it was yeah Mm -hmm. it said casualties of war and bonfire of the vanities but just come out with something like as bullshit and brash and kind of balls to the wall (laughs) as raising cane you've got a got a tip you've got to tip your hat to the guy to kind of do do that as opposed to i don't know yeah as as you said dracula is is a beautiful beautiful film but there's something i don't know there's something fun about raising cane that kind of yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's a wild ride. Yeah, and it's shorter, right? You could, you could. It's that thing of like, I don't know. He could kind of be like, oh, <laughs> it's sleazy fun for an hour and a half, and it's uh, yeah, yeah. You don't have to put up with Keanu Reeves doing a terrible <laughs> accent. <laughs> anyway, Mary, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Um. Where can people keep up to date with everything you're doing, whether it is lectures or kind of yeah, your opinions on films or uh, the mm. when you have new um, podcast episodes and stuff like that, whether it's projections or, or the Patreon. Yeah, where's the best place to find you? Well, um, the best place is to really follow me, if you can, on um social media i'm at psychstar p-s-y-c-s-t-a-r on twitter and instagram those are the places where i i announce uh whether it be you know new projections podcast episodes uh with uh which of course i co-host with sarah cleaver Mm -hmm. um i also always announce my patreon 
uploads. Um, you can also find me on Patreon um, on patreon.com slash Mary Wild. And yeah, at, at the moment I'm posting there very regularly once a week. And um, yeah, those are the best places. You can also, if you are into like live stream uh, courses on film, look out for Freud Museum courses that I deliver. The next one will be on the 2nd and 3rd of April on David Cronenberg, actually. Amazing, amazing. And that's why you <laughs> recommended Dead Ringers. It's on the brain, yes. Mary. Amazing. It's on the brain. <laughs> <laughs> Again, thank you so much for coming and chatting to me about this wonderful film. It's been an absolute pleasure. I always love talking to you and it's so delightful. I could talk. I could have talked to you for another two hours, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> likewise, likewise. Well, I'll, I'll let you get on with your evening, Mary. Thank you so much again. Thank you. A massive thank you once again to Mary Wilde. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree with me that that was a fantastic conversation. Um, I know we're on Patreon, and I, not 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 to shout out on the social medias, but if you are a Patreon and you do enjoy this, please do shout about it on social media. I'd love to get more people involved in what we're doing over here. And um, if you guys, especially on the Patreon, have any uh, suggestions of what films in De Palma's filmography you'd like to see covered next, let me know. I'm on. I'm pretty loose and pretty free with this one. It's pretty fun, uh, but I can tell you that next week well not next week it's the week after of course it's fortnightly but next episode i'll be talking to not one but two guests i'll be talking to one of the busiest man men in podcasting that is matt brothers who you may know from southern double deep spotlight and is paul dano okay three podcasts that i've all had the absolute pleasure of guesting on I believe Matt has, yeah, Matt has been on the podcast once to talk about Edward and um, we'll be on again another point. He's one of the people who's picked two films to talk about. So yeah, he'll be on the main feed uh, in due course. And the other person is a man who has written a book all about the start of next episode's film, which is Carlito's Way. And that guest is Mark Searby man who's written yeah fantastic book all about the career of Al Pacino so that's going to be a good one the neither Matt or Mark know each other so I'm going to be the kind of connective tissue in this one but it'd be great to kind of have a bit more of a discussion a bit more of a kind of round table all about um for my money and I'm going to lay my cards out on the table right here I think it's the better of the two uh Pacino De Palma collaborations yeah I'm coming for Scarface and I'm sure we will delve into why that is next week but uh I'm excited to be talking about Carlito's way so uh, I know you guys have joined me because you paid the money and uh if you've just paid the money you'll definitely see it out for the month because even if you cancel you'll get the month anyway so that 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 that's perfect so as always I've been Petrus Patsilibus, I've been Movie Bratton, and I've been Broin. So remember to keep on Movie Bratton and to keep on Broin, and I'll catch you next time. Imagine. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Droop Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.